0: Our scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13-25. through 25. I'll be reading from the NIV version. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in the ignorance. But just as he... Who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, friends. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Brian Brooks, one of the elders here at Kishwaukee Community EPC. And it is my privilege, and I truly mean that, a privilege to be talking with you this morning. I've had the honor to fill this pulpit on several occasions in the past, but this time is different. Not because of the trying circumstances and difficulties that we're facing today, but because this is the first time where I've been asked to preach, where I've been given the scripture to preach on. Normally in the past, I've been asked to preach, and it's been up to me what to choose. And God has been very faithful in always providing me with a verse to preach on. And if you've ever heard one of my sermons, you know that I always say God has given me a word to preach to myself as much to anybody else, so I wasn't quite sure how that was going to happen this time. But God, being ever faithful, has shown me once again that he has given me a word to preach to as much to myself, if not more so, than to you. So before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to to be here, to hear your word, Lord, to... uh, Delve into your scripture, Lord. We just ask your blessing on this time. Lord, please use me as your instrument to convey your word. That it be your words, not mine. That it be your message that is conveyed, not mine. And that it have the reach and effect that you desire and will. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Last week, Gary introduced us to Peter's first letter and gave us some background. As a reminder, Peter is writing this letter to Christians in various churches throughout Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. His letter is directed to believers that are suffering trials, persecutions, with more intense suffering to come, given the rise of persecution against the church. His is a letter of hope to them and to us. As Gary mentioned, this letter has been described as many things, a letter of suffering and persecution, a letter of hope, a letter of pilgrimage, of courage, of steadfastness. In addition to these, it is also a letter of exhortation, one in which Peter strongly urges his readers to certain actions. And that is exactly what he is doing in the passage we have read for today. Last week in preaching out of the first 12 verses of the letter, Gary spoke about how Peter recounts for his readers some of the privileges and benefits of being a Christian. That God has caused them to be born again to a living hope and to a heavenly inheritance. Now, in biblical grammar, these are known as indicatives. Things that are known, that are true. The facts, as it were. In this case, what God has done. Remember last week from verse 3, Peter states that God caused those things to happen. A Clear indication of an indicative. In the verses we will be focusing on today, Peter discusses the duties, responsibilities, and actions that flow from knowing these truths, these facts, from knowing the things that God has done. These are known as imperatives. An imperative is a command or something that demands attention or action, an unavoidable obligation or requirement. As an example, the boss scheduled you to open tomorrow would be an indicative, the fact. Be sure to bring your keys would be the imperative. What you do in response to the fact that the boss scheduled you to open. Now, the New Testament is full of these indicative imperative linkages as the authors discuss what God has done and what we are to do in response. The principal imperatives that Peter lays out for his readers in our passage today are centered around hope, but not just any ordinary hope. No, this is a special type of hope. Peter lets his readers know that hope is to be lived, hope is holy, hope is reverent fear, and hope is love. We'll talk about each of these and how they should shape our walk and our lives as followers of Jesus. There is a lot of ground to cover here. So it's best if we just dive right into the text. Please know that throughout the sermon, I will freely reference Peter's readers and us interchangeably, as this letter has direct application to both groups. So, hope is to be lived. As as Peter states in verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing we note in this section is that it starts with the word, therefore. It's an important word and one that Paul uses frequently in his writings. What it tells us is there are imperatives coming. The author is saying, I've just told you something real and important, and now, because of that, it should direct how you behave and respond. In this instance, in the opening of the letter, Peter first celebrates with his readers the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, he is telling them that since you are so honored and privileged to have had the good news of the gospel preached to you and have received this salvation, it should now direct your behavior in certain ways. The Imperative. All of that from the word, therefore. The word is almost always a sign that there's an imperative coming. So, how are his readers to respond to what God has done? They are to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus. Now, there's a lot there, so let's break that down. They are to set their hope. This isn't some sort of wishful hoping, like, I hope I win the lottery, or... I hope the coming winter isn't too severe. This is a hope based on belief. The Greek word used here denotes joyful expectancy. It is forward-looking. It is not wished for, but it is expected. There is assurance. Now, this hope is not just part way. This expectancy is to be fully set. Fully here means perfectly, completely, or unchangeably. To set your hope fully means to hope strongly, unwaveringly, wholeheartedly, without reserve. You can already see this is no ordinary hope. And what is the object of this complete, unwavering hope? The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But you may say, I thought they already received God's grace when they became Christians. And you would be right, partially. As Peter points out in the opening verses of his letter, his readers had already been born again according to God's great mercy. They have received God's grace, but that is only a portion of God's grace that will ultimately be received. Once we believe and begin traveling down the road towards Christ's return as Christians, We continue to receive God's grace as he molds us and shapes us more and more into the image of Jesus. This is the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, the process of living into what we have become. But this work in us will not be complete until Jesus comes again. Then the fullness of grace, so the whole redemptive activity of God on our behalf will be completed in us. Oh, for that day. But that day has not yet come, so we are to look forward fully, completely, and expectantly to the day Jesus returns and when God's work in us will be completed. And Peter gives us two ways to set that hope fully. One, Preparing your minds for action. Two, being sober minded. Now, what does it mean to prepare your, our minds for action? Sounds very cerebral. Well, the literal translation of this phrase is gird up the loins of your mind. Much more descriptive and colorful. But what does that mean? Well, throughout the history of the Bible, people wore loose robes or tunics, long shirts that would often go past the knees, over which they would wear their armor or a belt. Now these types of garments worked very well for normal activities, but they inhibited strenuous labor or uh, fighting or running. They would get in the way. So as a result, in times like these, in action, they would take the flowing ends of the robes wrap them up and around their upper thighs and legs and tie them off. Or, if it was extra long, would tuck them into their belt. This way, it would free up their legs, removing any hindrance or movement. So to tell someone gird up their loins was to tell them to get ready for work or for battle. It is saying, you have a journey to go, a race to run, a battle to fight, disengage yourself from all that would interfere or hinder you. Today's parallel, a phrase from today, would be to say, roll up your sleeves. However, roll up the sleeves of your mind doesn't have quite the same literary ring to it. So to prepare your minds for action, to gird up the loins of your mind, means to get rid of those things that take our focus away from God. Remove the things that hinder you in pursuing a fuller relationship with him. Free up your mind to focus on him so that you are prepared for the battle, the hard work ahead of you. Now, to be sober-minded can be, reduced, or can be read to be self-controlled, disciplined, to be free from every form of mental or spiritual drunkenness or excess, Rather than being controlled by external circumstances, believers should be controlled from within. In order to have an unwavering hope of receiving the fullness of God's grace at Jesus' return, we need to prepare our minds to focus on God and the path ahead and be disciplined in our thoughts and actions. We need to continue to examine whether we our thoughts, are taking us closer to God or away from Him? Are my actions being controlled by circumstances or maybe by others? Am I being influenced by the world in its appeals? Am I becoming under the influence, drunk, as it were, in power, anger, fear, greed, anxiety? Or am I staying sober? not allowing those influences to overcome me. Being sober-minded requires some self-examination, an honest review of how I act, how I respond, and how much outside factors are influencing me. Peter reminds his readers in verse 3 that they have received a living hope, Because we have been given hope as a gift from God, we are called to live in it. Our thoughts and actions should reflect this hope. We are to hope fully in what God has promised in the future by living each day with a clear mind focusing on Him and with self-controlled lives. Hope is to be lived. The second thing that hope is, is hope is holy. Peter states in verses 4 through 16, 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We are still in that imperative that I talked about earlier. Notice the words as and do not and you also be. Words directing our actions and how we act or not act. This section is a plea from Peter that the readers take an active part in the process of sanctification. He tells them they are to be obedient, like children, trusting completely in what our father tells us. Peter is saying, don't let your past ways when you were ruled by the passions of the flesh control you now. Then you were ignorant of God. You had not heard the good news of the gospel. As Paul said in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 4:17 and 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. Peter is saying, you know God. You have been called by him. You have experienced his mercy and grace. Trust in him as a child, trust in his parents, and obey his commands. Do not let your new life, your born-again life, reflect your former life. You should be different, set aside. As a Christian, our lifestyle should reflect the holy nature of our Heavenly Father, the one who called us to be his own. With God's help, we are to work to mold our character to be holy in all that we do. When Peter says to be holy, he means to be separated, dedicated, consecrated to God. It goes back to what Peter said in verse 13. Be prepared and focus on God. Have self-control. Jesus Jesus tells us to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Doing those things will lead to separating us, to dedicating us, to consecrate us to God. One of the ways that children learn is by imitating what they see their parents doing or what they hear their parents say. Unfortunately, sometimes what they imitate is not always our best Fortunately, though, we have a Heavenly Father who is perfect, who only has good qualities. As a father, we should seek to imitate God, but it's not possible to equal him. God is absolute holiness, and we cannot not hope to achieve that in this life. However, we should be in the process of becoming completely conformed to God's perfect and holy will in all areas of our lives. As believers, we have a responsibility in our inner life and outer walk to reflect God's holiness. Our hope is ultimately to become like Jesus, God who will make us in his image, in the likeness of the Son, We hope in a future in which we will be conformed to God's character. Therefore, we should live in a hope to be holy. Hope is holy. Hope is also reverent fear. Now you may ask, how can you say hope is fear? Isn't that the opposite of fear? Hope is? Just hear me out and let's examine what Peter has to say about it. Verse 17. And if you call him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, to start, by using the word if here, Peter does not mean that you may or may not call on God as Father. He does not if you choose. Rather, he means if you've heard the good news of the gospel, believed in Jesus as the Son of God, Repented from your sins, you have become a child of God and own him as your heavenly father. He means because you call on him as father. And you need to understand that he is a father who judges impartially and justly, but there is still judgment. And what does he judge? Among other things, Peter states that he will judge our deeds. Now, do not mishear what Peter is saying here. He is not saying that salvation is based upon our deeds. No, Peter is quite clear in the opening section of this letter that it is God's great mercy and grace that he has called believers to himself, that it was he that caused us to be born again. Nothing his readers or we can do can merit receiving salvation. No act of ours called God or caused God to save us. But Scripture is also quite clear that once we have received that salvation and become children of God, that he will judge our deeds. Paul talks about this in several places. Romans 2.6 He will render to each one according to his works. Romans 2.16 On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of the men by Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So our deeds will be judged. But it is clear also in the Bible that we are called to do good deeds, also called works, Jesus says in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that we may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And James in 2.26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith, apart from works, is dead. So we are called to do works, good works, good deeds. Again, this isn't salvation by works, but rather reflects the fact that our works, our deeds, follows the commitment of our hearts. That genuine faith will reveal itself in our words and deeds. We have been created to do good works to let the light of God shine before others, and to glorify God. And those works, those deeds, will be judged upon the return of Jesus. God's fatherly judgment does not just occur at the end, though. Upon the return of Jesus, he also disciplines believers as we go through life. Proverbs 1-7 states, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Again, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 quotes this last passage from Proverbs. And Paul states in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Peter reminds his readers that God is a father who judges. And he will judge believers on their deeds, both during the present time and the last day. As a result, we should conduct ourselves with fear. Now, this does not mean a paralyzing terror or being afraid to approach God but rather is a reverential awe, an understanding that God judges and disciplines as a father. Just like a child does not want to disappoint his father, we do not want to disappoint God. We are not to presume on God's favor, but are to shape our lives by a healthy dread of his judgment. This fear is a reverence and awe that should characterize our lives as believers during our exile on this earth. Peter again in this section references believers as exiles, as he did in the first part of his letter. We are to live as sojourners in an alien world, one that is not our true home. And since we are resident aliens in this foreign world, we never fully settle or perfectly fit in here. We should neither expect nor attempt to do so. Then, Peter gives some advice on how to live in reverential fear of God. Verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter tells his readers and us that as believers we were ransomed meaning we were redeemed, bought back, purchased. One is ransomed from captivity, imprisonment. Peter characterizes this imprisonment as the futile ways in which his readers lived prior to hearing the gospel, the prison of a life of sin. They were bought back, thus breaking the chain, the inevitability and power of generational sin. The idea that sins of the parents and grandparents are often repeated in later generations. And what was that payment? What was used to purchase them, to purchase us from captivity? Peter makes it very clear it was not gold or silver or anything else that is perishable. Yes, even gold and silver are perishable and they can be corrupted. Rather, the payment was the precious blood of Jesus. Peter likens it to a sacrificial lamb without blemish or spot. This discussion of ransom and sacrificial lamb recalls Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Multiple times in Deuteronomy, Moses references Israel being redeemed by God from its imprisonment in Egypt. And during the final plague visited on Egypt, it was the blood of a spotless lamb that saved the Hebrews. God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt points to the greater deliverance accomplished by Jesus Christ. Then it was the blood covering the doorpost that saved the household. With Jesus, it was blood poured out that now covers the sin of everyone who believes. We believe that God created man in his image to be his image bearers here on earth and that each human possesses an immortal soul, one that is not killed or destroyed when this earthly body dies or is destroyed. What Peter is saying is that an immortal soul cannot be redeemed, cannot be purchased by perishable, corruptible things. Only Christ's blood Is of a price equal to the purchase. The blood of an innocent, incorruptible, truly precious. The blood of the God man, the God man. Christ was sinless, uniquely qualified to serve as the sacrificial payment. As John the Baptist exclaimed when he saw Jesus recorded in John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As the perfect sacrifice, Jesus atoned for the sins of the unrighteous. What Peter is telling his readers is, understand what was accomplished for you. You were living a futile pointless life, one that was leading nowhere, only to repeat the sins and wrongful acts learned from your ancestors. You were in prison, a captive to your sinful nature. Nothing of this world could save you from that. Nothing could be paid as a ransom to set you free. Only one thing could redeem you, and it came through the perfect sacrifice, the precious Blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, who willingly came to earth to be that sacrifice. Amen. Peter exhorts his readers to know, to understand, that what was accomplished through Christ's death, and with such knowledge, it should govern how they conduct themselves, how we conduct ourselves, our actions, our deeds. Peter then goes on to provide additional background on Jesus as the Lamb of God and how that should affect his readers. In verses 20 to 21, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God planned from eternity past that he would send Christ and he knew when that would be. Jesus was revealed during the time when Peter's readers were alive. It was done for their sake. It is because of Jesus' sacrifice that they are believers. God raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at his right hand, gave him power and dominion over everything under heaven and earth so that as believers their faith and hope would be in God. But it was not just for the sake of Peter's readers that Jesus was made manifest. It is for all of us. Jesus as Redeemer was made manifest, was made known for our sakes as well. Although we did not live in the time, in that place in history, when Jesus was physically present on earth, he still has been made known to us. Jesus as Redeemer has been made manifest through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, through multiple ways. By his birth, the virgin birth, proclamation by heavenly hosts, the shepherds, the wise men, the star. He's been made known by his Father's testimony. as recorded in Luke 3.22. God said, You are my beloved Son, with with you I am well pleased. Jesus was made manifest by his own words. He referred to himself as the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the way and the truth and the life. He's been made manifest by his resurrection from the dead. He's been made manifest by the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Romans 1, 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Word of God makes Christ manifest for us as does the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. Therefore, just as the readers of this letter, we also can believe and place our faith and hope in God. Note that this section of the letter, verses 13 through 21, begins and ends with hope. Setting our hope fully on the grace of God and having faith and hope in God through the death, resurrection, and glorification of Jesus. Clearly, hope is a center point of the Christian life. So, as Christians, hope is to be lived out, it is to be holy, and it is to possess reverential fear of God. Final item in this section of Peter's letter lets us know that Christian hope also leads to love. Hope is love. Verses 22 to 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Peter writes that we purify ourselves when we are obedient to the truth. And by truth, he means the gospel. In other places in the New Testament, the word of truth is equated to the gospel. In Ephesians 1.13, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And again in Colossians 1.5b-6, through Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. And in James 1.18, He says that God chose his children, sorry, gave to give his children spiritual life or birth by the word of truth. So, truth, or the word of truth, means the gospel. Paul talks about obedience to the gospel in Romans 15 10, 15b to 16, when he cites Isaiah saying, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news! But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Notice how Paul links these two ideas. We obey the gospel when we believe the gospel. So what Peter is saying is that we purify ourselves when we believe the gospel and are obedient to it. Now, the Greek word used here for purified indicates a purification that is ongoing, a continual process. So an ongoing belief in the gospel and obedience to it, living in the truth, leads to ongoing purification of our souls, the act of making us more and more holy. Peter is saying that the gospel empowers Moral change, specifically the ability to love our brothers and sisters sincerely. Living in the truth has a purifying and separating power to remove obstacles to brotherly love. Things like selfishness, ambition, flattery, egotism, and the like, they get in the way of loving our brothers and sisters sincerely and are to be removed as we become more holy. Note how this links to girding the loins of your mind and being so reminded that we discussed earlier, and on being holy. Since living in the gospel leads to purification of our souls, which allows sincere brotherly love, Peter exhorts his readers to go even further. Here is another one of those indicative, imperative combinations. Since you have purified your souls through obeying the gospel, the indicative, you should then love one another earnestly from a pure heart, the imperative. The word earnestly or fervently suggests constancy and intensity, a straining and extending of every energy, by unifying elasticity, by a sustained perseverance. Peter uses love twice in this passage, The first is Philadelphia, when he talks about brotherly love. The second time he uses it, it is agape, a sacrificial love. It denotes a love which counts no sacrifice too great for the one loved. So we are to share a sacrificial love for our Christian brothers and sisters, one that is proactive and not reactive, one that is constant, sustained, intense, one that we strive to maintain. It comes from a pure heart. The motivation is not to get, but rather to give. And how is this possible? How can we share this type of sacrificial love? Peter tells us it is because we have been born again. Again, As stated earlier in the letter, Peter confirms that being a Christian means that there is new life, born anew as some translations refer to it. Not born of the perishable, corruptible seed by which we are children of men, but by the imperishable seed that makes us sons and daughters of the living God. As Paul states in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. And what is this imperishable seed that has the power to give new life? It is the living and abiding word of God. God's word has life-giving power. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The life that God gives is not is beyond physical. It is the life of the spirit. He takes a heart that was made of stone and makes it one of flesh, cleansing it, filling it with the love of Jesus, to love what he loves, and to love like he loves. As Jesus said in John 13:34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you are to love. One another. Peter Peter is echoing Jesus's call to love one another like He loves sacrificially, and this is only possible after one has been born again through the living, enduring Word of God. Peter then quotes Isaiah forty six through eight to contrast our physical mortality with the enduring, everlasting. Eternal Word of God. Verse 24: For all flesh is like grass, and all glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. Man, at his very best, is still a withering, fading, dying creature. In our birth, in our life, and in our death, we are like grass. All of our strength, our beauty, our intellect, our wit, our health. We are like a flower of grass which withers and dies away. We are perishable. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Imperishable. And then Peter adds this statement in verse 25. And this is the good news that was preached to you. He does this to reiterate to his readers that the good news of the gospel is part of the word of the Lord. That a faith and hope in God, through hearing the gospel, leads to love. In this context, hope is love. So in conclusion, Peter is telling his readers, and us, that as Christians we should be living In the future tense, our present actions and decisions are to be governed by this future hope. Just as an engaged couple makes all their plans in light of that future wedding, so we as Christians should live with the expectation of seeing Jesus Christ. This is no ordinary hope. This is the type of hope that should be lived out. It should direct our lives. This type of hope should instill in us a reverent fear of God as we love him as a father who judges. This type of hope leads to becoming more like Jesus, imitating God, becoming holy. And this type of hope helps us to love one another sincerely as brothers and sisters and sacrificially like Jesus. It is this type of hope that will see us through the trials and tribulations, the suffering, the grief, the loss that we are sure to experience in this life. Believe and trust in Jesus. And know that upon his return, all of this hope, this special kind of hope, will be complete in him. Amen. Please pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that there is hope, that you provide a hope, that you provide a way, Lord. When we face the trials of this world, when we grieve, uh, when we are persecuted, when we just struggle, Lord, in this world, we can set our hope on you and look forward. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to attune our minds and hearts to focus in on you, to not be distracted by what is around us, Lord, to get the things out of our lives that hinder us from coming to you. Lord, we just praise you and thank you for all of this, Lord. All that you do, for the special hope that there is in Jesus Christ, who willingly came, Lord, to be the sacrifice for us, to redeem us, to pay that price for us. It's a marvelous and glorious thing, Lord. Thank you
0: and all this we pray in Jesus name. Amen.